0: Some of our passages have been drawn from 1st uh, and 2nd Timothy and Titus, which are called the pastoral epistles. Um, the readings today will come from 2nd Timothy, um, some verses in the 1st in the and 2nd and 4th chapters. Hear now the word of God. Do not be ashamed then of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. But join with me in suffering for the gospel, relying on the power of God who saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace. This grace was given to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. For this gospel, I was appointed a herald and an apostle and a teacher. And for this reason, I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know the one in whom I have put my trust. And I am sure that he is able to guard until that day what I have entrusted to him hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus guard the good treasure entrusted to you with the help of the holy spirit living in us and now from 2nd timothy chapter 2 you then my child be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus And what you have heard from me through many witnesses entrust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, for the Lord will give you understanding in all things. And then 2 Timothy 4. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing in his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Lord, as we gather here today, we gather around a book called the Bible into which we step daily or weekly or monthly and hear words that are sometimes hard to understand or words for which we do not have a context. My prayer in this sermon and in any sermon is that these words will travel From 2,000 years ago to today and speak to us in our hearts and our lives that we may live for you. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. As we've seen in this summer series so far entitled Jewels in the Attic, the congregations that received the letters that we have in our New Testament is the books of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus are congregations that had several characteristics that it helps us to know and understand to follow the letters. The congregations were likely in the city of Ephesus, located in a region which in biblical times was known as Asia Minor. It is present-day Turkey. The city of Ephesus and thus its congregations were ruled by the Romans whose attitude towards the Christians varied from a sort of look-the-other-way tolerance to sometimes indirect or even direct persecution. And thus the people who received these letters were were often looking over their shoulders or hoping that someone had their back. The congregations were small in number, unlike ours. Forty or fifty people at most, they would meet in homes, and the homes were owned by the more prosperous members of the congregation. Now, by the time these folks were meeting, the death of Christ had occurred at least fifty or sixty years earlier. And Christ had not, as had been expected, Returned in the second coming. And so these early Christians who received these letters were more or less in the process of accepting that fact. And settling in for the long haul. Seeking to live quietly and faithfully, sometimes under persecution. Not in the world as they intended it, but in the world as they had received it. In this setting... The writer of these letters, who is either Paul or an understudy, writing in his name, stresses the importance of major beliefs on which their faith is founded and by which their churches are held together. In all the words you heard earlier, there is a stress on major beliefs. Hold to the standard of sound teaching that you have heard from me, the writer says. Guard the good treasure that's been entrusted to you. Proclaim the message. Be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. In 1948, an introverted, bespectacled English professor at the University of Chicago named Richard Weaver wrote a critique of the turn that Western thought had made since the 14th century nominalism of William of Ockham. The book, A Book of Philosophy, became a foundation for American conservative thought for the next 50 to 75 years. It inspired William F. Buckley to found the National Review. Now by comparison, to show how fractured we are today, despite the inherently conservative philosophy of this book, On the back cover are words of praise from theologians Reinhold Niebuhr and Paul Tillich. People were much more together in those days, reading one another's thoughts, following them, trying to listen. The name of Weaver's book is Ideas Have Consequences. The writer of 1st and 2nd Timothy and Titus is saying to these 1st century Christians, and by implication to us, that what we believe is of utmost importance in determining who we are. Ideas have consequences. In studying these passages from 2nd Timothy this week, I have found three jewels in the attic that I had not noticed before that I want to share with you today. They relate to the essential ideas that we have in our faith and to the consequences that those ideas have. First, as we have become increasingly aware in our society of how many choices we have, Concerning what we believe and what we are to do, it is ever more important that we have clear, well-established ideas about who we are and what we believe. This is true whether we are, an, we are speaking of an individual, a family, an organization, a church, or a nation. In all these spheres, ideas have consequences. When I was growing up in the 1950s and 1960s in the suburbs of Memphis, I did not know a Jewish family or person until well into high school. I was aware that there were Roman Catholics. But only because every Friday in the school cafeteria we were served fish sticks. I'm not sure I could point out who the Roman Catholics were. I knew no one who was Muslim or Middle Eastern. I was in seminary in New York before I met anyone who was openly gay. In my high school, there was only one language spoken. That was Southern. <laughs> By contrast, I am told that at T.C. Williams High School, in this neighborhood, there are more than 60 languages spoken among the, within the, the uh, student body who come from over 80 countries. By contrast, the only real diversity that we knew growing up was whether you were Baptist or something else, (laughs) and whether you were black or white. Life unfurled in what looked like the living room of Rob and Laura Petrie, replete with Rob sidestepping the ottoman every time he came home from the office to kiss Laura on the cheek. As I look back on it in that culture, the ideas were assumed, not named. But in our culture today, such consistency consistency and predictability has evaporated. Every individual life, every friendship, every relationship, every marriage, every family, every business, every church, every school faces enormous Choices concerning who they are, what they believe, and what they are to do. In this multiplicity of choices, ideas are extremely important. They shape our identity, they do have consequences. That may be one reason that in the diverse first century setting to which Paul is writing, writing to Christians who are living as a minority within their community, with all the religions of Rome and Hellenism about them, he calls the earliest Christians to be clear about what they believe and who they are. Sound doctrine, he says, sound teaching, good treasure. Ideas have consequences. Now, second, as we develop what we believe, either in a secular or a religious setting, the spirit in which our ideas are developed and shared is crucial. I had lunch Friday with someone in the congregation who had not watched much of the political conventions last week. She said, I understand from the people in the office that the Republicans emphasized a dark vision of the world and the Democrats emphasized a more hopeful vision. Which do you come down on, she said? Is your view of the world more dark or more hopeful? I honestly did not take her to be probing how I was going to vote. I think she le- legitimately wanted to know what her minister's view of the world was. And I wasn't just dodging the question, honestly, when I said, I'm pretty much a creature of darkness. I know that there is tremendous evil in the world. I know that sometimes the only way it can ever be contained is with force. But I'm also a creature of hope, I said. And I think that to fight evil around us, we have to have hope. When Paul expresses the importance of ideas to early Christians... The words that he uses to actually describe the ideas are pretty neutral. Sound teaching, sound doctrine, good treasure. But he surrounds them with words of hope. Hold to the standard of sound teaching, he says, in the faith and love of Jesus Christ. Guard the good treasure, he says, with the help of the holy spirit proclaim the message he says be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable dark or hopeful but convince rebuke encourage have the utmost patience in teaching in communicating And sharing what you believe. Now to be sure, Paul is fully capable of entering darkness himself. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He writes in another letter. Paul himself had held the cloaks of those who had stoned, persecuted Stephen for blaspheming the name of God by believing in Jesus Christ. Paul realizes he does not live in a world in which everyone is reasonable and civil, in which Cain did not kill Abel in an argument over whose offering to God was superior. Paul knows the power of darkness that is within himself. He knows the power of darkness that is within all forms of human religion. He knows the power of darkness that is in the world. But still he urges these early Christians not only to have ideas that are clear, but to present them in ways that are civil, affirming, positive, humane, rebuke, encourage, have patience. The spirit in which Paul presents his ideas is crucial. Now third, Paul does more than simply affirm the importance of ideas and affirm the spirit in which he expresses them. Paul also stresses the importance of the content of the ideas. What is the most important content of the sound doctrine to which Paul is pointing and stressing for these early Christians? In 2 Timothy, where our text appears, Paul assumes rather than specifies the content of the sound doctrine that he is teaching. Thus, we can only reconstruct that content from other places in these three letters. But let me take a stab at such a reconstruction and then see how it might apply today. After one of the first sermons in this series, a member of the church emailed me a verse from Titus, the only book in the series from which we're not actually drawing a text. In this verse, after a series of instructions that Paul gives to members of the church, some of which we would need to explore in separate sermons, Paul writes these words. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all. Now, if you were to read this verse in your Pew Bibles, which I haven't printed in the bulletin so you don't have to, but if you read this verse in your Pew Bibles, you would notice at the bottom a translation note that says, This verse can be translated, The grace of God has appeared to all, bringing salvation. While others translate, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. It's a nuanced difference. But in either case, it appears that the reason for God's appearing, the reason for God to be incarnate, to be born in the person of Jesus Christ, the reason for God becoming a human being is salvation. The gathering up of every human being into the presence and person and life and, shall we say, kingdom of God. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all. No matter what aspects of theology or politics or ethics on which we may differ, if as Christians we hold central the idea that God intends and perhaps even ultimately promises to bring all people into himself. Then other ideas that we develop from this central idea will at least lead us to seek and make a place in the world for every human being. And it will lead us to approach every human being as the recipient, as the recipient of the same grace from God that we have received. That the grace of God has appeared to all, bringing salvation. Grace. Grace. To all, this is the sound doctrine that is essential to Paul. I've shared with you that one of the ministers I knew growing up was a gravelly-voiced, white-haired preacher who had had three heart attacks by the time he was 60 and who in the early 1960s had lost one of his pulpits because he was supportive of desegregation in a town that was not quite yet ready to go there. During the time when I knew him, which was much later, I heard him share with the congregation he was serving at the time that he was a twin, that he and his brother had been orphaned at an early age, that they had grown up in the rural home of their grandparents before and during the Great Depression. They both rose from their hard scrabble existence to receive an education and, to, and attain success. He as a minister, his twin brother as a physician. But they did not see eye to eye on race. At a particularly tense family reunion in the late 1960s, one brother finally said to the other, we better go for a walk. No one was sad they left the room. They were gone, three grown men, at the height of their work and their careers, they were gone for over three hours. But they came back. They were quiet, dignified, and seemed a little more relaxed. When the minister told this story, he said to the congregation he was serving at the time when I heard it, he said, it wasn't the ties of blood that led us to walk back into that room together. It wasn't the shared suffering of our upbringing. It wasn't the mutual love for our grandparents who took us in and fed us and clothed us and gave us an education. It wasn't any of that that led us to walk back into that room. On our walk, he said, we decided that what we had most in common was our baptism, our baptism in the same Presbyterian church, our baptism in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the same yesterday and today and forever. Baptism led us to turn around and walk back into that room together. The idea of baptism had that consequence. My wife Maggie is working on a thesis, trying to restart a thesis, as many of you know. For her Doctor of Ministry degree. Her thesis advisor has just left the University of Dubuque Divinity School, where she's working on the degree, and accepted a position as pastor of one of the large urban cathedrals in Baltimore, a church that towers over the city, with a beautiful Victorian sanctuary, and yet has many fewer members than were present. And the sanctuary was built. On Monday Maggie and I drove to Baltimore to meet so that she could meet her professor. We got a tour of the magnificent sanctuary, then I made my way to a coffee shop around the corner while they met. As I walked through the neighborhood, with stores and bakeries from dozens of countries, and people nearly all less than half my age of all races and nationalities on the sidewalks, I was aware that a few hours earlier a judge had issued the third acquittal in the death of Freddie Gray over a year ago. I entered the coffee shop and it was buzzing with young adults, most of them African or African-American. And I wondered what they were thinking. I wondered if there would be protests in the street, either then or later that day or evening. I wondered how I might be received in that coffee shop. But when I entered, a young black man wearing colors opened the door for me. And as I stood at the counter, a young black woman nodded for me to go ahead of her. It seemed that the people working at the coffee shop or making it their gathering place were enormously hospitable, a community of welcome. I don't know if it was Baptism that led him to such hospitality? I think probably not. I don't know if it was faith. I don't know if it was some larger vision of America or some larger vision of the human race. I don't know if maybe they had some implicit idea that if there is a God, that God would surely welcome everyone. I don't know what it was. I do not know what it was that led, to, led them to such grace. It may have just been that I was old <laughs> and had a magazine, <laughs> nothing electronic on me. Maybe they felt sorry for me. I don't know. (laughs) But it was some idea, explicit, implicit, or shared. Some idea led them to the consequence of welcome.